Hi, my name is Lucy. I'm a junior and I'm a part of Chapel Street Students. I was kind of raised in the church. My family, we'd always identified as Christians, always believed in God, and I kind of just, for a long time, just like said I did, I never really knew what it meant or what Jesus dying on the cross actually meant or if it did anything for me. Life at that time was fine until about fourth grade. My dad had passed away and that event of my dad passing was kind of the big, I guess you could say, road bump in my faith. Seventh and eighth grade of middle school, I was just living as like a normal middle schooler. I was going through a lot of insecurity issues. I was so sad and like just at such a horrible point in my life. With depression and anxiety, there would be days I just like couldn't look at myself in the mirror. Feeling of like looking at myself and like that person in the mirror is different than like the person that I actually am. You look at yourself and you hate yourself. Depression, I kind of think of it as like you're stuck in this box and you like yourself, you're trying everything to push yourself out of it. But no matter what you do, even if you put yourself, push yourself outside of that layer, there's another box right outside of it. Like it's a constant everyday ongoing battle. When quarantine had hit, that's when my depression, I felt like was taking over every single part of my body. I couldn't control anything I was doing. It was just tears and anger every second of every day. I was at the point where like, I just wanted it all to stop. I remember I was laying in bed, it was probably two, three in the morning, and I was just laying there with my thoughts, bawling my eyes out crying. Those bad thoughts were like hitting extra hard that night. And the thought of actually doing something to harm myself had never really been super big until that night. I had tried everything. I had gone to therapy, nothing was working. So I, prayed to God and I was just like, I don't even know if you're real or what's going on, but like this is like my last chance. Like this is my last shot. And if this doesn't work, then I just don't think that like I'm meant to be here anymore. I just remember like just laying there after I had done praying and I just felt this random like wave of like calmness come over me. With dealing with depression and anxiety, I always have like this heavy pit in my stomach that like something bad's gonna happen. And I remember for the first time in months, like that feeling that was in my stomach and my chest, it had just like been like lifted off of me. Ever since coming to Chapel Street, my entire life has changed. Obviously God has changed my life, but I prayed for so long to have that community of people. I can come to these people with any issue and I'm not gonna feel judged by it and I'm not gonna feel like my feelings are invalidated. And being here for the two hours every night on Sunday night for D Group, it's like my escape in a way. It's kind of like, yeah, I have school tomorrow, but like it's Sunday, I get to go see the people that God has blessed me with. And then I decided this summer to take the next step into getting baptized during the stadium service. Just standing there like after I'd been baptized and standing there with some of my best friends, this wave of emotion coming after me because I was like, if you didn't have God, Lucy, like you wouldn't be standing here right now. Like you wouldn't be here right now. 
God has done a lot in my life the past almost two years since I have God in my life and I have opened up his word and I've read who he has made me to be, that I was knit together in my mother's womb, that he created me for a purpose, all of that trumps every other bad thought that I have. When you give your life to God, life is not gonna be all daisies and rainbows and nowhere in the Bible does God promise that. But what he does promise is when you go through those valleys and there's low parts and those parts where you feel like, I don't wanna be here anymore, He's the one that's there. There is just no doubt in my mind that God isn't real. If he can pick me up from the point I was at, we're literally about to end my life. I know that he can do that same exact thing for absolutely anybody. Here at Chapel Street Church, we describe ourselves as a place where you can experience grace and grow in faith and make an impact. And what a story that Lucy shared. She's had the opportunity to experience God's grace and to grow in her faith here at Chapel Street. And she's making an impact. And my heart is full when I I watch that. I have uh, daughters in college, I have daughters in high school who are feeling some of the same pressures. And I just want to say thank you to you the people of Chapel Street. Church isn't a building, it's the people, for showing up. Thank you for showing up and serving and giving and growing and loving. And I want to encourage you and admonish you, keep showing up. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And the way that Jesus has chosen to work is through the church, his people. So thank you uh, for, for being the church and loving people like Lucy, and giving, uh, giving Lucy an opportunity to come to a place where she can learn and find hope. So thank you, and let's keep going. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be in chapters 28 to 34. That's Mark chapter 12. And while you're turning there, uh, let me shift gears a little bit. And I find my mind often wandering and thinking about things that... Um, Aren't, aren't always helpful or useful, but I'd like to, um, yeah, my mind goes to places that are um, about us as, as humans that don't make sense. One of the things that's quirky about us as human beings is we love to make lists and to, um, to wonder what is the best of every single thing we can categorize. We all have our Mount Rushmore's for whatever thing that we're into. We argue about who's the most accomplished. We, we argue about who performed the best or what performs the best. We, we, we love to debate what tastes best. We even like to talk about who wore it best. Whatever activity you're into, whatever your profession, there's always a list of the top five, the top ten, the top twenty, the top one hundred. And we really do it with everything, don't we? Of course we do it with sports. 
There's always the conversation about who's better, Michael or LeBron. How how much endless words have been spoken, how much ink has been spilled talking about who's the best basketball player, what's the best football team, who's the best baseball team. We do it with everything. We do it with food, don't we? Who has the best pizza? Chicago or New York? Well, forget New York. Who has the best pizza in Chicago? In my family, we're, we're a divided home. I think uh, Giordano's is best. The rest of the family thinks Lou Malnati's is best. And it's okay. They can be wrong sometimes. That's okay. But we love to proclaim the greatest of any category, don't we? It's an odd human quirk. We even do it with our faith. The top five hymns. Who are the, the top three reformers? Who are the, uh, what's the most powerful verses in Scripture? The best preachers, the most influential churches. Now this human quirk has been around for a long time. Even long before Jesus walked the earth, the people of, of Israel participated in this quirky practice. In their careful reading of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they identified 613 commandments. 248 that were positive, and 365 that were negative. The positive one saying, do this. The negative one saying, don't do this. And with so many commands, they were constantly working to condense all of the Torah down into a pithy statement that would be memorable and capture really what the true essence of the entire law was. And rabbis became famous uh, if they were able to do this. There's one famous instance, instance when a rabbi named Hillel... Um, shared this story, and it's well known even to this day. He was asked by a man who's exploring Judaism if he could explain the whole Torah to him while standing on one foot. And Hillel responded, What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and study. The Jewish people loved to summarize all these commands, and they would spend considerable time not only summarizing, but ranking the commands, which was superior, which was the most important. What was the supreme command that, that distilled it all down and held it all together? So all that to say is, all that to say is that these questions and categories were often considered and much discussed by the Jewish people by the time Jesus came to earth. And speaking of Jesus, here in Mark chapter 12, We are in the final week of Jesus' life before the cross. And this young rabbi from Nazareth has entered Jerusalem to much fanfare. And in this chapter, we find him in the temple. And he's being challenged over and over again by the religious leaders who are trying to build a case against him. Only it's not going so well for the religious leaders. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they failed in their attempt to pit Jesus against Caesar in Rome and to pit him against the Jewish people. And then the Sadducees had failed to get him to say the future resurrection was a silly thing. Everyone was taking their shot at Jesus, and, and nobody was, was winning. They were all being taken down by Jesus' wisdom. Now in verse 28, we see a Jewish scribe enter the scene. Now the scribes were the, the Torah experts. They were the interpretive experts of the time. They knew and understood the Old Testament better probably than anybody of the period. And on this day, an unnamed scribe finds himself in the temple where he witnesses this young rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus expertly answering all these theological challenges that are being thrown at him by the best minds in Israel. And seeing how well Jesus is doing, 
he decides that he's going to throw himself into the ring. And he asks a great question. He asks a great question. It's a great question because it's going to give Jesus the opportunity to prove himself and to showcase his wisdom and cement himself as a great teacher in Israel. But it's also a great question because of all the interchanges we're seeing in the temple, in this, in this section of Scripture, it appears that this is probably the most honest inquiry uh, that we find. He seems to be genuinely wanting to hear what Jesus has to say. And Jesus actually commends him later on. He's not hostile. He's, seeking, he's not seeking to trick Jesus. He's not seeking to bring him down. He's seeking truth. And what is this great question? Well, the, the scribe pulls the classic out of the hat. We see it in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing all that he answered them, seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And immediately, what does Jesus do? He gives a greater answer. This is where we will be spending the bulk of our time today. It's a greater answer because it looks back, and it summarizes the entire law, but it also looks forward and will ultimately point to the only true answer that we have, Jesus Christ himself. So let's look at this greater answer in, in verses 29 and 31. Jesus answered, The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The young rabbi Jesus answers the expert in the Torah by, by doing what no rabbi had done to that point. He gives a two-part answer. He combines the Shema, we'll talk about that from Deuteronomy 6, with Leviticus 19. Now the Shema comes from Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema because the first word in the Hebrew uh, it, it, that is mentioned in that text is Shema. It means to hear, to listen, to heed. It's really one of the most well-known passages in Scripture. Maybe you've heard it before. Listen, listen to the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. That's the Shema. But it comes with some very specific instructions for God's people in verses 6 through 9. And this is what it says. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your, <clears throat> your hand. They shall be as a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, I'm sure every, most people have heard that, heard this, right? Deuteronomy 6, very famous passage. Well, it's, it's well known to us, but you have to understand for the Jewish people, this was part of their essence of who they were. This was the opening sentence of every synagogue service. This was repeated every morning and every evening during prayers. The words were worn on their bodies during, during prayers. And they were hung on the doorposts of the family by every family in Israel. My, uh, I had the opportunity to raise my daughters in, in a town called Skokie, in Illinois, up in the northern suburbs, and there was a, a large population of Jewish people. My daughters had lots of Jewish friends, and to this day, 
if you go into an observant Jewish home, there will be a little scroll on the doorpost with the Shema. It is part of who they are. It's the creed of Israel. It's their national anthem. It's part of the DNA. And why is it so important to them? Well, it defines their God. It defines their relationship with him. And it defines their responsibility before him. You see, it gives the name of God. The Lord, he is one. Yahweh, he is personal, yet he is holy. And it gives the position of God in, in relation to all other gods. He is one. He is separate. And he's over and above all the other nations' gods. All the other nations had multiple gods. No, Israel worships the one true God. And it gives a call from their God. What is that? To love him with all that you have, with your heart, your soul, your strength, and your might. Every part of your being was called to be loving God. And it gives a command to pass this all-encompassing love on to the next generation. That is the Shema. But then this Rabbi Jesus adds Leviticus 19.18 to the greatest command. Leviticus 19.18 says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus adds another layer to the Shema. You must love your neighbor as yourself. The great command, the Shema, had a vertical dimension to it, to love God. Now, Jesus is adding a horizontal component to the greatest command, to love your neighbor. It's a summation of the law, the primary objective of the Torah. The ultimate purpose of the commands is for people to love God with all that they have and to love others as they love themselves. Now, I know we're talking about Jesus, but this is brilliant. It really is. It really does capture the essence of the law. It's actually a perfect summation of the, old, of the, of the Ten Commandments, if you think about it. If you think about the Ten Commandments, the first four are all vertical, about, about having no, God, no other gods before God, about have not, not making anything in his image, about, um, about not using his name in vain. They're about how we relate rightly to God. The final six um, commands are horizontal about how we relate rightly to one another. We don't murder. We don't commit adultery. We don't, we don't envy. Jesus very truly, clearly, and concisely has summed up the Torah and the law. And this verse isn't just simply for Jewish, um, for the Jewish community. It's for us today. But before we try and consider... All this that this means for us today, I think it's important to define a couple of things. So I think the first thing we need to do is define this idea of love, right? What is it that we're talking about when we're talking about love? Well, the word Jesus uses here is agapao. It's a divine, uh, other-centered love. So based on the meaning of the word and and the testimony of the rest of the Bible, I'm going to take a shot at defining this term love. In this context, love is desiring and doing what is best for someone else regardless of the personal cost. Let me say that again. Desiring and doing what is best for someone else, regardless of the personal cost. Okay? So if that's love, and we want to do what's best for someone, what do we do with God? What do we do? How how do we do what's best 
for the uncreated, holy, perfect creator of the universe. How do we love God? How do we do what's best for him who has no needs? Well, again, Scripture helps us here. We do what he says. 1 John 5, 3 says this, This is love for God to keep his commands. We express our love for our creator when we do what he created us to do. When we do what he asked us to do. Now imagine you have, your father uh, likes to make cars and he lovingly restores an old classic roadster. And he takes you out. He doesn't only teach you the, the rules of the road. He teaches you all about the car. How it corners, how it accelerates, um, how, it, how, to, how to use it, how the brakes are are quirky and how to make them work. And then one day he throws you the keys and says, take her out, take care of her. So what are you going to do to express love to your father in that moment? Are you going to take the car off-roading? Are you going to enter a demolition derby? Are you going to try and jump a school bus? No. You remember what he taught you about how to best use the cars, and you do it. How much more do we express our love to the creator king of the universe who sent his son to ransom us when we do what he asks us to do? We love God by obeying him with all that we have, with our heart and our soul and our strength. And just to make sure we got it, Jesus adds one other aspect to this list that's all-encompassing your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He wants to make sure we get it. But then Jesus also adds, one of the chief ways to love God is to, uh, and to obey his commands, and one of his commands is to love others as ourselves. Well, what does it mean to love somebody as you love yourself? We could talk a lot about that, but I just want to say this. It means you look after the interests of others like you look, look after your own. If you're cold, you get warm. If you're hungry, you get food. We know what this means. You take care of yourself. You take care of others the same way. You love God by loving other people. Paul actually agrees with Jesus with this in Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Listen to what Paul says. Do nothing of self, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Let, let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we count others as more significant than ourselves, and we look out for the interest of others. We love other, others by considering them more important than us, right? That's our mind. And we love others by looking to protect and promote their interest. That's our action. That's what we're called to do. We see it all over the New Testament. There's 59 one another's in the New Testament. They speak directly to this. Love one another. Show hospitality to one another. Bear with one another. Bear one another's burdens. We see it in the parable of the Good Samaritan where we learn that there's no picking or choosing who our neighbor is. It's everyone, regardless of how we feel about them. Jesus and the law are calling us to desire and do what is best for everyone else all the time, regardless of the personal cost to ourselves. 
Now let me end this section by talking about three things we need to consider about this great command. First of all, it starts with God. It has to, right? Our vertical connection with God has to be in place for us to horizontally connect with others. It just makes sense. We can't truly love others unless we're truly living in the love of God. Apart from God and his love, we are selfish, we're scared, we're self-centered, aren't we? That's who ours, and we're creatures who are incapable of loving others. It follows that we must experience love from God before we can love others. One commentator puts it like this. Love for God releases the love of God. Love for God releases the love of God. That is, our personal love for God will inevitably lead to wanting to obey him and join him on his mission in the world, which leads us to spreading his love to others. Our love for God enables us to love people. People at Chapel Street Church loved God well enough so that we were able to love Lucy. So it starts with God. But it ends with people. I want you to think about this. We have this reciprocal thing that's happening. If the greatest command is to love God and love others, and the way that we love God is to obey his commands, we can't fully love God unless we're loving others. It's a command. We can't fully please and love God unless you're desiring to do what's best for people here on earth, regardless of the personal cost to you. Think about it. A hermit can live, a monk can live on top of a mountain and give their entire lives to seeking God. But they're not fully pleasing to God, ultimately, are they? Because they are not in relationship. They're not in community. They're not living with others. Loving people is the context by which we love God. Our love for God enables our love for people. And our love for people is evidence that we love God. That makes sense? You can't have one without the other. So it starts with God, it ends with people, but there's one more and probably an even more important point to consider in this passage about this great command. This command points to Jesus. I think if we're honest, and we know that there's, we know that there's no way that we can fully obey God in his greatest command. We know that. I know that. I certainly have loved, haven't loved God with every ounce of my being at all times, even this week, even this morning. I haven't done that. And I've been selfish, and I've been self-centered, and I've not esteemed others as better than myself. I haven't looked out for the interests of others over my own. I haven't fully obeyed, and I'm assuming you haven't. And Scripture's pretty clear that neither has any other person who's ever walked this earth except for one. And that person is standing right in front of that scribe. His name is Jesus, and he wants so much more for this scribe than just to give him a great answer about the law. He doesn't want just to drop some knowledge on this expert. He wants to help him move from death to life, to help him leave the kingdom of darkness and leap into the kingdom of light. Jesus loves the scribe, which leads to a most important observation. A most important observation. We see this in, in verses 32 and 34. 
And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said he is the one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all of your heart and with all of your understanding, with all of your strength, and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than a whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now notice how this, this Bible scholar responds. He had a great observation. Jesus, you're right. How much better would all of our lives be if we had that observation every day? Jesus, you're right. Loving God and loving others is much more important than following all the rituals and all of the law. And he understood that all of those rituals and all those sacrifices pointed to the emphasis and focus of the law, which was to move towards others with love. It's a great observation, but Jesus doesn't want the scribe to simply agree with him. That's not why Jesus is there. He doesn't want the, the, the scribe to simply agree with him. He wants so much more. So Jesus makes a much more important observation. And really, it's one of the most important observations we can make about our own lives as well. Look at verse 34. What does he tell the scribe? You are not far from the kingdom. You are not far from the kingdom. Now, there's, there's three different ways we can unpack this statement, this observation. It has a threefold significance. First, at first glance, it's a compliment, right? It's a compliment. Jesus is impressed with the answer. The scribe has searched the scriptures, and he understands that the law is not about keeping rules. It's about maintaining relationships, having right relationships with God and right relationships with others. And Jesus sees his heart and knows that he's genuinely seeking truth, that he's not trying to trick him or trip him up. He knows that his agenda is to know the truth, not to protect his own idea of the truth. He is close to understanding and experiencing the kingdom. The kingdom is, is where God's purpose and presence exist in this world. He's so close. This is a good word for the scribe. But this is also a warning. So it's a compliment. But it's a warning. The scribe was close to the kingdom, close to experiencing the purpose and presence of God, but he was not there. If any of you watched the Super Bowl last Sunday, you know that the Cincinnati Bengals were close to scoring a touchdown at the end of the game. They were close, but they didn't cross the goal line. They lost. My senior year of high school, I missed going on to the state meet and shot put by a quarter inch. I did go behind the, the bleachers and cry afterwards. You can talk to me later. A quarter inch. I was this close. That just pulled the tape a little tighter. But I wasn't in the, I wasn't in the state meet. I wasn't invited. I was that close. How much more sad would it be if I was always this close to the kingdom of God? But I wasn't in. The scribe is close. He agrees with Jesus. He believes in the one God of Israel. He believes that the most important thing we can do is love God and love others. But he's not in the kingdom. You see, the scribe agreed with him. 
But agreeing with Jesus is not the same thing as being with Jesus. Let me say that again. Agreeing with Jesus is not the same thing as being with Jesus. Jesus, this rabbi who's standing before him, is not simply a rabbi. He's, he's God of the universe, the one who created it all and made it all. In John 10, he describes himself this way. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So the observation that this scribe is making is getting him close. But the way that he enters is through Jesus Christ. You see, the scribe knew everything pointed, that everything pointed to Jesus. The scribe understood what pleased Jesus. He made that clear. But the scribe did not know Jesus. He had not confessed his sins and given his life over to Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Now, we don't know what happened to the scribes. On this point, Scripture is silent. But I think this text is very clear for us all this morning. The application is clear and straightforward. You can seek to love God with all that you have. Chapel Street Church family, you can go to every Bible study we have to offer. You can spend your life learning about God and seeking to obey him, but not be in his kingdom. You can also seek to love others with all that you have, right? You can spend every hour down in shepherd's heart that it's open. You can give all your money to the needy. You can spend your life serving, but still be this close to the kingdom. Yes, this is a passage, is a call for us to love God with all that we have and to love others as ourselves. And this is what we should be doing. It is one of the, the greatest call of Scripture. It's the greatest command. Love God with all that you have. Let's do that. Let your love for God drive you and empower you to love others with abandon. And love others more than yourself. And may your love for others further and strengthen your love for God. Love sacrificially. Take risks. Take chances. Yes, love well. That's our call. But remember, but remember, there's only one who did it perfectly, and he wants you to join him. Because you can't love God fully, and you can't love others sacrificially unless you come to him first. So open your heart. Surrender your life. Experience real love. And let him help you love others. So Chapel Street family, if you are in the kingdom of God, act like it. Love. Love big. Love deeply. Love sacrificially. Love generously. We have faith. We have hope. We have love. But love is the greatest of all. Obey God and serve others. Ask God to help you love better today. And if you don't know if you're in the kingdom, you can enter in. Jesus is standing before you. He's offering an invitation to experience and spread his love. And we do so very simply. We understand and know that we are sinners, that we are separated from God. 
When we come to Jesus, we offer him our lives, and we seek to follow him as Lord and Savior. Stop just agreeing with Jesus. Be with Jesus. Enter in. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we've talked about what is the greatest command in the Bible. And we ask for your help and your strength to be able to carry that out. We know that we can't do it apart from you. So Father, may it push us all to love you more, to obey you more deeply. May it push us all to love others sacrificially and lovingly. But Father, I pray that this text and this message will push us all to your son Jesus, to his feet. So Father, do that. We simply don't want to agree with you. We want to be with you. May that be so of all of us. I pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.